Well, good morning. Good morning. It is so good to be with you today as we begin a new series in our uh, false study, in our fall teaching series, and uh, the letter of 1 Corinthians. But I will tell you, of course, it is always exciting for me when I have the opportunity to join you in kicking off these church-wide studies. And I'm going to tell you, uh, this week, maybe I should warn you, that excitement level has been off the charts. Not only for the anticipation of how God might work through what is perhaps the most uh, practical Bible book, book of the New Testament, letter of the New Testament, but also because next weekend I have the rare and wonderful privilege of officiating my youngest daughter's wedding. Oh, thank you. My baby girl. I'm going to walk her down the aisle. And then I'm going to turn and I'm going to attempt to speak words of pastoral counsel and fatherly advice while totally maintaining my composure. <laughs> I know. <laughs> the closer we get, the more I sound like that little train that could. I, I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. But interestingly, really, uh, what's dawned on me this week is in reflecting on what I wanted to share and planned and what the Lord has showed me to plan to, to uh, share with you this morning and what I hope to share with Caitlin and Q a week from today is uh, there's a very uh, common thread. Uh, there's a similarity between the central understanding of 1 Corinthians and a key principle in a God-honoring marriage. And that being the call to spiritual oneness. Unity. A unity that is to be experienced within covenant marriage and to be experienced within the church, the primary emphasis of 1 Corinthians. And see, God's design for husband and wife is that the two have become one. They are no longer two. And that is a depiction of the bond between Christ, the bridegroom, and his church, the bride. And in the church community, the experience of oneness is, is similar. We are called to no longer be many, but one, which is a depiction of a new life community within the body of Christ. And that, that whole theme, that central understanding is going to be the underlying theme to the entire series, United. Grounded in the idea of oneness, 1 Corinthians is going to challenge us, is going to convict us, is going to disturb us. But it's also going to uplift us. It's going to energize us. It's going to move us to a more uh, complete and collective life on mission. Because 1 Corinthians is, is perhaps the most relatable, uh, the most uh, relevant of the New Testament letters. It's a record of believers behaving badly with uh, little evidence in their life of being changed by their faith. And little opportunity or little chance to actually reach others because of that testimony. It is a necessary message for the church of all generations, in all places, of all times. And so this morning, we're going to begin with a, an overview for the purpose of context. And then we're going to take a look at the very first issue that Paul is going to address and how it might apply to each of us. And so let's just begin with some background and setting to this letter of 1 Corinthians. It was written by the Apostle Paul around the year A.D. 55, which is about three years after Paul had first founded the church. That detail of the founding of the church in Corinth is in Acts 18. 
where it actually starts out with 18.1 and says, Paul left Athens, he came across, he went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. This is his second missionary trip, and Paul uh, will arrive in Corinth and meet Priscilla and Aquila, who were exiled from Rome. They become close friends with Paul and, and critical to his early ministry in Corinth. And so we're told Paul met, meets them. He is then preaching and teaching in the synagogue that was there until he was quickly kicked out. But not before the ruler of the synagogue, Crispus, believes in the Lord. And he joins Paul in the house next door to the synagogue, a Roman citizen named Gaius Justus. And most believe that that is the location, the place, the time of the founding of the Corinthian church. He stays for a year and a half teaching, equipping, evangelizing until the church is established and he makes his way back home, the end of his second journey. And so then we fast forward those two or three years and Paul begins to hear of some chaos in the church, some rumblings of unruly behavior, uh, misinformed doctrine, and worst of all, division. He hears this first from a concerned church member, which we see in Chapter 1, verse 11, for it's been reported to me by Chloe, her people, that there is a quarreling among you. And it's also reinforced by a letter he receives from the church itself that had been filled with questions that gave him cause for worry. Now concerning the matters from which you wrote, but then making those matters worse is this wasn't the first time Paul was asked to intervene in the church. In chapter 5, we read, I wrote to you in my letter, implying that there had already been uh, some corrective instruction in a previous letter. Now, it's a letter that's lost to antiquity and we don't have, but it was referenced in order for him to highlight the lack of spiritual growth that was coming out of this church. And then here's the most important contextual detail I think we can take with us for the rest of the series. Had you or I been a casual first century observer of this situation, sensing Paul's frustration and with his church, we might have been tempted to pull him aside and say, come on, Paul, give him a break. I mean, this is Corinth. And most of them are Corinthians. Could you really expect anything different? And the reason that we might take that approach is because Corinth was known wide and far for her moral depravity and debauchery. A culture, I know this is hard to believe, a culture more perverted than our own. See, by the 6th century, Corinth had become recognized as the grandest, the wealthiest in all of Greece. It was home to, to many citizens, but it was a destination for many more. For the religious, there were numerous pagan temples that stood atop the 2,000-foot Acro-Corinth, the Acropolis in Corinth. The grandest was a shrine to Aphrodite, the goddess of pleasure and lust and sexual love and beauty. Here's a rendering of what historians have envisioned that temple to look like at that time. And so not only was it a pilgrimage site for many, many visitors, but it was home to over a thousand priestesses, or as they were known later in the evening, prostitutes, sent out for 
let's say, temple fundraising. There was theater, there was art, and the biannual Isthmian Games, second only to the Olympics in terms of popularity and participation. And then providing for this constant flow of visitors and commerce was arguably the world's greatest seaports. These maps might help give it just a just an indication and, and help us sort of set our bearings here. But um, in Greece, as you can see, is comprised of two major land masses, a north and a south. And it is connected by this four-mile wide at its narrowest point, ten-mile-long isthmus, or land bridge, for which Corinth sits at one end of it. And despite there being no canal, no waterway, until 1896, just over 100 years ago, it was always the safest and fastest route for east-west trade and transportation vessels and ships. See, rather than go around the 250 miles of the Cape, dangerous waters, the ships would dock on either side of the seaport, and then they would be dragged across rock tracks or put on wooden rollers and moved across. Plus, given what we know now, I'm sure the mention of shore leave in Corinth was always a bit motivating for the sailors. So it's a hubbub. It's cosmopolitan. It, uh, you know, by the time Paul's arrival, the city was, was now a Roman colony, but it embraced its Greek culture and its seedy reputation. And while <laughs> I think most of us will know this, we associate in our own country a certain city with a phrase, what happens in the city stays in the city. Well, for Corinth, it was a word. A word was coined throughout Greece and the Mediterranean called Corinthianize, which was always associated with anyone of loose morals or promiscuous lifestyles. Even in the theater, the part of the Corinthian was always identified with drunkenness. This was Corinth. Her reputation preceded her. So think about this. This is the culture for which the first church in southern Greece perhaps was drawn out of. This was the culture from which these first-generation Christians had participated in just a few years ago. Now they worked among, lived within, navigated this same culture, a city of over 200,000 plus all the visitors. And what we're going to see is that many of the issues that Paul's pointing out that they were experiencing stemmed from an unwillingness to divorce themselves from that culture. They had one foot in and one foot out. It was easy to do in Corinth, particularly in light of such a debased surrounding. And really, that's the question to us. Is that still easy to do? Can we tend to straddle culture in that way, foot in, a foot out? We probably do, all to some extent. And that's going to be one of the most challenging and disturbing parts of Paul's messages, is because he makes clear. And I think, I, you know, I've come to think that perhaps uh, the Lord saw fit, God saw fit to inspire and preserve this letter to Corinth as an indication of the worst of the worst in culture, giving us no excuse. That if they're called to uh, clearly obey 
to, uh, regardless of their societal pressures or their surroundings, then surely we are too. And that's because followers of Jesus are always supposed to be different. The church is called to be different. Because it's only when the church and her members are different than the world around her is she truly attractive to the world around her. This is the message to Corinth and to us. And so throughout 1 Corinthians, we're going to be asked to evaluate our behaviors and our beliefs, individually and corporately. For the Corinthians, the issues were many. They included quarreling, favoritism, sexual immorality. Um, it included a diminishing view of marriage and singleness, a distor uh, distortion and disorder in worship, judgmentalism, condemning unbelievers, uh, abusing Christian liberties and rights, selfishness, and many, many more. And you might be thinking, well, River Oaks doesn't seem to be identified by those sort of issues. How, how will this be applicable to us? And I would say, I, I, praise the Lord. I agree. I don't think River Oaks is identified or defined by these sort of issues. And yet, at the same time, we can't deceive ourselves. Every church has issues. Each of us have issues. Every church has the potential to be as messy as the church in Corinth. And why? And I think a lot of us realize this or know this. Because church members are saved, but far from perfect. That's why church is hard. That's why the pursuit of unity has to be intentional, never taken for granted. And that's why we must rely on the Holy Spirit's presence, enabling us to grow in righteousness, to reject willful disobedience, and to extend grace and forgiveness, compassion, and kindness, and love to one another so that we extend it to others as well. We are called to desire the type of oneness for which Jesus prayed in John 17. He said, I do not ask for these only. I'm not just praying for those who are here in this upper room for these disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, for you and me, for the members of the church in Corinth, that they may be one, just as Father you are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. You know, every time I, I see this, this verse, this passage, um, I just try to imagine a local church experiencing that type of oneness. The oneness that exists between the Father and the Son. Just think about that. That would be pretty incredible, right? That, that would be the oneness, I, I believe, that sets the stage for the transformation of an entire community. Just as, as Jesus prayed, so that many may come to believe. That's unity for the sake of the gospel. And that is the aim and the theme and what we will continue to go back through in our look at 1 Corinthians. So, with that overview, let's pick up. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. 
following some customary greetings, Paul is going to get into this initial appeal. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and same judgment. Paul's initial appeal, the overarching theme of the entire letter, come together, agree in Christ, have a same-mindedness, which really points to the essential doctrines of your faith, and a same judgment, which really points to practices or the application of those doctrines of our faith. And so in short, church, be united that you might restore the common testimony by way of your beliefs and your behaviors. And so uh, this word united, unity, before, before we move forward, it's going to be such a major piece to this entire study. Let's just talk about that. Let's clarify that. It's often misunderstood. It's obviously a critical mark of genuine belief, given the prayer of Jesus, the words of Paul, the full counsel of Scripture. In fact, uh, its importance is often so underestimated that we miss that in this sense, in this usage, Paul here uses the word united that is better translated as church be perfectly united. So it's not a casual suggestion. So what does that look like? What would a church being perfectly united look like? Well, there's an image that we find later in this same letter that I think at least is a good starting point. It's an image uh, that describes this union, this unity, and that is of a physical body. A body with different but equally valued and important parts joined in a common purpose and concern where if one suffers, all suffer. If one rejoices and is honored, all rejoice and are honored. When one is involved in dishonoring the body, all are dishonored. One body with a shared conviction of gospel essentials and a shared motivation to honor the Lord in obedience. That's the picture, at least the image, of a united church. And notice, notice what it's not. Clearly, unity is not uniformity. Being united does not require us to check our unique personalities and our interests at the door. Actually, conversely, it encourages us. Our differences are our strengths. And, and in this, I, I do like uh, how the uh, late Tim Keller spoke into this, this thought or this idea. He said, he once said that there are really only two kinds of churches, a living church and a dying church. Living churches, he has found, are often more diverse culturally, demographically, socioeconomically. Yet, at the same time, they're often more united on kingdom mission. Whereas dying churches are often more homogeneous, sameness, greater uniformity, yet often less united on kingdom purpose. Both, both have issues, both have conflict, but the unified churches resolve them in light of that greater purpose. I think that's really good, and I think that's the appeal for a united church that Paul is going to be getting at and that we are called to pursue. And so 
this pill is, an appeal is made, and Paul begins to address this first major cause of division in the church, misguided loyalties. Misguided loyalties. He writes, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Factions in the church. Four little groups had developed as a result of a misguided allegiance to human leaders. It had become polarizing. And there were some who looked at Paul and said, well, wait, he's the founder of the church. He is our leader. He's the only one we listen to, the end-all, be-all. He was the father figure, the apostle, who had a direct encounter with the risen Lord. And, and others said, well, no, no, no. It's, it's no longer Paul. It's Apollos, who had been approved by Paul. But uh, Apollos was known for his eloquence, for his polished speaking. And in a culture where public speaking skills are highly valued, oh, he was worthy of much more respect than Paul. And then still others said, well, neither of those. Haven't you heard or don't you recall Cephas? Who is the same as Simon Peter? This is Peter they're talking about here. They said, well, you know, whether Peter had actually visited Corinth or not, we're not sure. But at least if he hasn't, his reputation was such that many in the church said, we follow him. He was one of the original 12. He's, he's a Hall of Famer. He's the guy who's passionate, dynamic, the sort of celebrity figure that we want as our leader. And then there's that last group, the I, you, I follow Christ group, which on the surface, that sounds like the right answer, right? I mean, that sounds like what the group we want to be in. But commentators agree that their inclusion on this list by Paul indicates that they were equally responsible for the quarreling and the division in the church. Most likely because of the way they held a, uh, an insincere or a self-righteous disdain for the others. So all four of these groups were creating these factions. They had retreated to their four corners and they were bickering. Certainly not, not the way that a united church uh, should be. And so Paul says, let me speak into that some. Let me start to build this case of, of what's going on here. And he says, to demonstrate the danger of choosing fellowship over fellowship, Paul writes, you're divided? Is, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? In short, what he's getting at is that misguided loyalties run contrary to an undivided lordship of Jesus Christ. Their focus on human leaders had blurred the proper focus on Jesus Christ, who will never be portioned out among what amounted to Christian cliques in the church. And even, even to those, this is what I love about Paul, even to those who said, I follow Paul, you would think he would say, okay, that's the group to be in. Follow me. And he says, no, no, stop honoring me above everyone else as well. No more arguing over who is more qualified or gifted or entertaining. Paul says, if that had been so important, I would have baptized you in my name so that everyone would know. I didn't. I didn't baptize you in my name. I baptized you in the name of Jesus, and I pointed your allegiance to him. In fact, was, was I crucified for you? Was I buried for you? Did I arise for you? Can I save you? So recalibrate that allegiance to Jesus Jesus alone, and then come together with all who are called to preach the word of God. 
humbly and faithfully. And so I think about this, and I think, well, how does that relate to us? How might that look for you and me? And, and one of the things, I guess just sort of qualifying this, is I realize that we all learn differently. We, we have preferences for teaching styles and that seem to engage us maybe more easily. I know I do. And, and that could be with preachers. That could be with small group leaders. It could be with podcast teachers, authors, uh, even certain ministries of the church that engage us and divide us or we have a preference for maybe. And so is Paul saying our inclinations are wrong and that we should resist that? I don't, I don't think so. No, I don't, I don't think so at all. I think uh, that he would suggest that those sort of preferences in and of themselves are not the issue at all. They could be a warning, but they're not the issue. Because it can be a fine line, though, that if we're not careful, we can quickly place a human leader or a particular ministry or a particular group on a pedestal. And over time, we will find ourselves more ready to worship them than to simply admire them. I mean, isn't that, it's not that far-fetched, right? I mean, that's, isn't that what happens uh, maybe to fans of sports teams or athletes? Maybe with rock stars or uh, certain streaming television series, politicians, political groups. I mean, the phrase cult-like following doesn't exist for no reason. And so as followers of Jesus, with the least bit of cultural influence, we know it's out there when we tend to step into it. We have to stay, stay aware of that slippery slope of our admirations and preferences consuming us and dividing us over really what often is matters of opinions and preferences. And it should also be clear that, uh, that Paul's not talking about doctrinal issues or heretical teaching. He's talking about this, the, all these are approved by the church. He, he's talking about simply for certain human preferences we decide and, and it divides us. And he goes on, furthering his case. He says, don't you know the Lord called me to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. I love that. I don't know if you see what he's saying there, but I think I can use that sometimes. Don't you, don't you know the Lord called me to preach the gospel and not with proper grammar or pronunciation? That's liberating. <laughs> Woo! Thank you, Paul. And the truth is, by world standards, it is often the most polished or the eloquent who are the most persuasive or effective. But Paul says with things of God... It's different. We discover that the cross itself is most powerful when it reveals itself through the message, not the messenger. We lessen the importance of the cross, even empty it of the power in our own lives and the lives of others, when we marvel more at the delivery than we are amazed at the content. I mean, you could just hear Paul's plea at this. Resist these unhealthy partisanships. He says, I know, I admit it, I'm not the most dynamic speaker. That's not what I was called to be. My attention is on the proclamation of the gospel and the power of the cross, the message over the messenger. And after addressing that problem, identifying it, uh, speaking through it, Paul next rallies the church around the solution. 
If that was the problem, here's the solution. Plain and simply, the solution is the cross. The cross unites. He writes, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The power of God to unite us. To an unbelieving world, the message of the cross is foolishness. But when understand and received within God's plan, our salvation, there is nothing more powerful or wise or unifying. And here's, here's the picture here that I think we get in our mind is that these letters were typically read aloud in the church when they would be sent out to the various churches. And, and I have to think that as they're reading this letter aloud from Paul, I mean, just a few sentences into it, the very mention of those who are perishing would have immediately caused them to think about the world around them. I mean, just look outside their windows, every direction they turn. And wouldn't you think that it would have immediately made their quarrels and factions seem pretty insignificant, if not downright silly? That's often the case, isn't it? In our humanity, we get worked up about the smallest, silliest things. What if, what if the next time, and I'm speaking to myself, what if the next time we're about to engage in unnecessary dispute, something really silly, not on the grounds of truth and doctrine, but we could take just a few seconds to weigh out the consequences of what we are about to say or do and consider that to those who are perishing, our next move, our next word, our next action is going to either reinforce the foolishness of the cross or be used to demonstrate its power. I have to believe we would react differently. I know I, know I would. And this is the perspective Paul is trying to ingrain in their thinking. He continues, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. He says, yes, even when it's the message over the messenger, many will still reject it. It won't be the sign that a lot are really looking for, trying to see. It won't be those wise and eloquent words that many say they need to hear intellectually. But don't miss that many still will be changed by that message. And that's our calling. Changed by the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so in connecting it back to the earlier calls for division, Paul says the solution is to stop seeking that type of power and wisdom from your leaders, your teachers, your preachers, your ministries. Let their message be Christ crucified. Hold them to it and join with them in sharing that message so that many will believe. See, Paul wants the Corinthians, he wants you, you and me, by way of this letter, to know when we constantly look to be impressed by anyone or anything other than God, we actually risk being less impressed with God. And even worse, the crucified Jesus might no longer be enough for us. 
We need more. We need that next. Surely there's something better. And again, certain teachers' ministries do resonate with each of us and assist us toward that greater biblical understanding, knowing God and loving Him more. But there is a spiritually mature way to live out those preferences without disagreement and division. We simply need to be aware of how much those individuals or ministries mean to us. Could we lose them tomorrow and be okay? Versus how much the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ means to us. And a final word from Paul on this subject before he closes out this this first issue in this chapter. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became the wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in their leader? No, boast in the Lord. You know, we have some brilliant, highly intelligent people in this church. We have some powerful ones. We have some wealthy ones. We might even have one or two of noble birth. We thank you. We're grateful for you. We commend you. According to scriptures, one of the most difficult things to do is to find worldly success and still see the need for a savior. But when I look in the mirror... I I tend to see, looking back at me, being part of that larger group, which Paul says makes up most of us in the church. You know, I've often said, Lord, I know what you're doing, but i got to say it again. If I was you, I wouldn't choose me. And then I'm encouraged by these words. I think, you know, in in my simple-mindedness, my inadequacies, If you allow me in the smallest way to teach your shepherd, and even though I, and no lacking of noble birth for sure, then it truly is, it truly is, it has to be God's power on display and not my own. Trust me on that. If you knew me better, you would know that it has to be his power. And this is what Paul says happens. It happens with all of us. And I think that's a great encouragement too. That um, for those of us who feel incapable or worthy of serving in any meaningful way, we're all unworthy. In a way, it's, it's, it's like the example. This is what I see Paul ending with here. He says, it's like the example of a surgeon who performs open-heart surgery in a world-class medical facility with all the latest tools and support. Now, he or she is still a very gifted surgeon. They'll receive credit for successful operations. But what if that same procedure was performed deep in the rainforest with nothing but a Swiss army knife? Whoa, that's a surgeon. Wow. We are God's Swiss army knives. Not much to look at, but he wants it that way. He chose us. He designed it that way. 
that as one body submitting to his will, we are allowed to be part of kingdom ministry and work so that when the world looks on us, hears us, is part of our ministries, is part of hearing the gospel from you as a neighbor, they look back at us and they say, wow, now that's a God. His power is made perfect in our weaknesses so that none of us can boast in ourselves, but all of us can boast in God. That is so good. And so in closing, I'd say first of all, a couple of suggestions, but first of all, if you're here today in the cross of Christ, the message of Jesus is foolish to you or confusing to you, or maybe you've never heard the message of the cross, please don't leave here without letting us know. Write it on your Hey, I'm Here card. Um, it is our greatest responsibility to, to have that conversation with you, to share what it means to receive that gospel, that good news, for eternal salvation with faith in Jesus Christ, that free gift. So please let us know that. For those of, those of us who are followers of Jesus... A couple of thoughts. I would encourage us as we go through our week, as we go through this series, to increase our awareness in the potential that awaits a church that is perfectly united in Christ. Let's be intentional in that pursuit. I know, I know some of you have often joined Pastor Beatty in various prayer groups over the past almost 25 years. And if you have, maybe you've noticed that one of the more frequent prayers is that of an ever-strengthening unity and protection from division. I would ask all of us to join in that prayer as well. And then lastly, as with the passage this morning, as we move through this letter, we are going to routinely return to one explanation for why it's so important that we be perfectly united. Why we must be aligned in our beliefs and our behaviors. And that is simply... For the sake of the gospel. In short, we are different because he lives. That's our why. And so I'd encourage all of us to spend more time reflecting on how for the sake of the gospel actually guides our daily decisions, our words, our attitudes. Ask ourselves with an eternal perspective, is what I'm about to say or do really worth it? Have my beliefs and behaviors been a barrier to someone coming to Christ or a bridge? And for the gospel's sake, may we all be of same mind and same judgment. United. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this inspired letter from your servant, Paul. Lord, as we read it and study it, May you just open our, our eyes, the, the eyes of our hearts, Lord, uh, to understand and, and hear your voice, what it means to live faithfully as one body. Lord, would you open our eyes to those around us who are perishing? Would you open our hands and our feet, Lord, that we may serve you in a way that you alone get the glory and the honor? May we not boast in ourselves. Lord, may your church be different. May you protect her from division, for the sole purpose that many may come and believe in you. Lord, we ask this in all of your name. Amen.
Amen.